Let's turn together this morning at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel chapter 5. I answered the phone. Hi, this is Alan Witt, president of the Family Policy Council of West Virginia, just like I normally do. But at the end of this call, I would be shaken because I had realized the fight had truly come to West Virginia. The gentleman on the other end of the phone didn't give me his name, but he said, Mr. Witt, I've heard what you do. Can you help us? And I said, well, I'm not sure what's going on. He said, I'm an out-of-work minor. I've been laid off for more than a year, and it's just me and the girls, and we haven't been making the mortgage. Well, that is until the girls decided that the money that they had been earning by singing at family functions and a few weddings, just a little bit, $150 a night, one played the piano, one played the guitar, and they were pretty good, he said. And they decided, they said, Daddy, we were going to save this money for college. But let us help. We know things are tough. And so with the money they had been earning singing, these two teenage girls and their dad were making the mortgage here in West Virginia. But one day, last fall, the girls received a telephone call from their website that they had put up with a little video of them singing, a cute little love song that one of them had written. The woman on the end of the phone said, hey, we want you to come and sing at our wedding. My fiance and I are getting married. He said, my daughter asked, oh really, what are your names? When the woman on the end of the phone mentioned two female names, The daughter was polite, but said, uh, we'll have to get back to you. And they went to their dad and they said, Daddy, well, what do we do? So the gentleman on the end of the phone had called me and now the girls were on conference call. And he said, well, you've got to call her back. You've got to tell this person that you, you can't do a same-sex wedding. It would violate your religious conscience. You, got, you girls know that. So they called the lady back and they said, we're really sorry, but we're Christians and we can't participate in your event. We're, we're sorry, we're sure you can find someone else. The lady on the end of the phone responded in anger and said, oh, you are going to sing at our wedding. You two little, and I'll edit the word out that she used, you two are gonna sing for us. You're gonna come, you're gonna come to our wedding you're going to sing that love song. You're going to get down on one knee and sing it to me and my future wife as we have our first dance as wife and wife and we share our first kiss. And if you don't, we're going to sue you into oblivion and you're never going to sing that song for anyone else again professionally. Do you understand? So the gentleman said, we're calling you. Can, can you help us? And um, my throat tightened because I realized what they were asking me. 
And sadly, I had to say to this gentleman, sir, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Because the way the law is written in West Virginia right now, my recommendation is that the girls close down the website and you stop singing. Because if you are sued right now, if you do other weddings, but you turn down this one and they sue you, you will lose. When they heard me tell them that, I heard the girls burst into tears and I heard the, the gentleman get choked up. And he said, well, girls, I guess, I guess God didn't want us to have the house. Because with unemployment and the, the girls chipping in, they were just making it. But now, they probably will lose the house. And without the West Virginia Religious Freedom Act, we have no protection. We cannot fend off these lawsuits. 21 states have taken the step and passed these much needed protections. But in West Virginia, we still can't sing. America is changing. No one could have imagined what lay ahead seven years ago when a young senator from Illinois was sworn in as president. There are unprecedented east-west issues. And by west, I mean Europe and North America. Radical Islam is plotting jihad in the homeland According to reports, there are sleeper cells in all 50 states. In keeping with Islamic history, the goal is the annihilation of Christianity, our values, and our way of life. Minority-majority issues are looming large. For generations, American believers have enjoyed majority status. Maybe that's probably something we take for granted. When you're in the majority, you have political and cultural power. You make the laws, set the policy, influence matters of family, education, government, what goes on in local schools and neighborhoods. As a consequence of majority status, We have thought in terms of power. We talk about the culture wars. In a democracy, that often means a power in the ballot box. As John has pointed out, that means much more. But it does mean the ballot box. While there is reason for hope in the West Virginia House of Delegates, this power continues to diminish in America. Things are quite different, hear me, things are quite different when you have minority status. I have witnessed this in a number of places around the world, most recently, as you know, in the Middle East where Christians don't dare use the M word, Muslim, in speaking to each other the proper term or where they would be heard. The proper term is majority religion. 
Now, we can learn a lot from our minority status, brothers and sisters. We have been told, and some of us go back all the way into the 80s with the moral majority. We felt pretty confident about ourselves. We have been told that evangelical Christians compose one-third to one-half of the country. But credible recent research says that we are between 7 and 8.7% of the population. I can document this. Less than 1 in 10 Americans on a national level are evangelical, Bible-believing people who hold up Scripture as having authority. A recent article condemning religious freedom had a chilling title, Too Many Christians, Too Few Lions. The principal of Hollywood Elementary School became aware of changing times in early December when he announced the school would celebrate the 12 days of Christmas. The county office stepped in and scrapped it, all because one parent complained. Political correctness is the law of the land. Are you weary of all of this? I'm sure you are. PC is the fruit of multiculturalism, a pillar of American higher education. Multiculturalism says that all cultures have, uh, are valid. All cultures are equally valid. Islam, with its worldview, is no different than Christianity or Hinduism or anything else with their worldview. Sharia law is therefore as valid as the U.S. Constitution. Our government would do well to heed the warning of German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Recently, in calling for the assimilation of refugees into German society, she noted multiculturalism leads to parallel societies and therefore remains a life lie. In changing times and a trajectory toward minority status, unless the God of heaven sends revival in a secular society, we have come to a time where we must think differently. We must be engaged. We must be informed. We must be proactive. I referenced not long ago, I enjoy telling the story of a friend of mine who in the heady days of the Promise Keepers movement joined this group of men at the mall in Washington. He got on a bus with other men from Beckley and joined. I think there were men from the the 48 states at least, several million men. He said he was walking along in that crowd coming to the mall when he saw a protester who was holding a large sign that read, Why aren't you home mowing grass? (laughs) Now that's the question. Mowing grass is important. 
but awareness and involvement at that juncture that uh, promise keepers recognized more than a decade ago and in the juncture where we are today. It is imperative that we live out our faith in the use of our influence and our time and our resources and the abilities and privileges given to us in a democracy. We cannot deny the hour in which we're living. We cannot be ignorant of the times. We cannot escape into materialism or entertainment and to somehow imagine that we're going to go back to the 1970s or 80s. Folks, it's gone. It's gone forever. Now the good news is that For millennium, believers have lived victoriously for Jesus Christ from a minority position. The New Testament was originally written to believers who had minority status. They were being crushed by Roman law and culture, which from the first century A.D. was rotting from the inside. Everything you see in today's paper, everything you see on the evening news was going on in the first century in the Roman Empire. It took 300 years for Roman Roman's, uh, Empire to ascend to its apex. For 200 years, it was the great civiliz- greatest civilization on planet Earth. And then it took 300 years downward until finally the, the hordes, the barbarians, came in. And nobody cares, but the year was 476 A.D. Simply to say what? Roman culture was on a rapid decline when you come to the New Testament world. Our Lord was crucified and the New Testament writers are writing to believers of minority status throughout the empire. Multiculturalism, it was there. Human trafficking, abortion, child abuse, the whole deal was there. Immorality, the drug culture, all of it was there. And it's here. Uh, Paul wrote to minority believers of the empire. I'm sorry, Timothy wrote to minority believers of the empire. Yes, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter wrote to Christian refugees like hundreds of thousands of believers who are fleeing places like Iraq, uh, Iraq and Syria, driven from their homes and countries, not because of the economy or from politics, because of their faith in Jesus Christ and all the implications of that. Peter writes in his introduction that the genuineness of your faith having much more, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. We are far along, uh, 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 enough along. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews said, you've not yet at your time resisted unto blood. As John has said, we're not there yet. But we are far enough along to recognize that the values around us are in sharp conflict. Kingdoms in conflict, as Colson called it. Kim Davis, the Rowan County, Kentucky clerk learned that. 
persons in the military and in our government in all positions now are increasingly sensing uh, conflict. Are you aware that one hot spot right now is the chaplaincy in our military? The chaplains are under huge, huge pressure. Let me just share this with you as an aside. People ask me almost every Sunday, what are you going to do? What are you going to do later on this year and next year? Well, one thing I want to do is uh, I want to apply as a, um, a cruise ship chaplain. That's my calling. That's my calling right there. Yeah, there are such folks. There really are. And they get paid. You know, somebody's got to do this for Jesus' sake, Right? But you know, think ahead on that. The one simple question could put me back in Beckley. The question is, is a chaplain on board a cruise ship required to do weddings? (laughs) Bam. And I'll say, you know, that was a really good idea. (laughs) This touches us all. touches us all. Those who follow Jesus in the first century assume minority status, becoming the target of a system that Jesus called the world. He said, they hated me, they'll hate you. How does this fit the health and wealth message? They'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you'll be hunted by all nations or hated by all nations for my sake. Are we there this morning? No. Look at the trajectory. In the opening verses of chapter 5, Jesus, speaking to minority people, states what we call the Beatitudes. It's a Latin word meaning blessed. The Beatitudes tell a spiritual story. It's a spiritual MRI of what occurs in the character and lifestyle of one who follows him. It begins with blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about uh, economic poverty. He's not talking about mourning that we experience at great loss in our lives. The Lord Jesus is painting a portrait of a spiritual journey, your spiritual journey and mine. The journey begins when someone shares the good news with us of of the death of Christ for us, his resurrection. And it's bad news before it's good news, isn't it? You understand in hearing that message, by faith, You come to an awareness of your spiritual bankruptcy before God. And as you really become gripped with that, you recognize that you are poor before a holy God. You spiritually are in abject priority. And as a result of that, when it really strikes home, does it remember when when it struck home for you? The night I was saved, I went to church to get saved. Uh, I even dressed up a little bit. <laughs> I didn't want to be down there, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> I had been brought <clears throat> to a place where uh, 
I don't know what the preacher preached that night. It was a heaven, sweet, hell hot, a free will Baptist revival. <laughs> and um, man, I couldn't wait. You know, that in, in, in my country church in Wyoming County, the only place you could get saved was right there. <laughs> and I couldn't wait, you know. I just stopped short of putting an X on the floor before the service, okay. Couldn't wait. But my heart was broken because of my sin. What happens after that? Verses 5 through 11 describe a journey of growth. Growth in grace, growth in Christ, in character, faith of one who is now a believer and in becoming more and more like Jesus. We become passionate about truth and righteousness and ethics and peacemaking and we hunger after righteousness. But notice where it ends. Do you recognize what is happening in this kind of life? As one is growing more and more like Christ, he's growing more and more unlike the world system. And the ultimate end, whether it ever becomes a national issue or not, becomes a personal issue. What is that end? And by the way, uh, uh, people are invited on the Uh, talk shows that go through this and are exhibiting these kinds of things, right? This is the kind of stuff that gets you on CNN, right? Look at verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you because of the transformation that's going on by the grace of God Blessed are you when you are reviled and they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil things against you for my sake. The end result in a dark culture is rejection and persecution. In 13 and 14, our Lord uses two dynamic metaphors to describe the role and the position of a believer in a pagan society, one who was in minority status. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. 14, you are the light of the world. Among the treasure troves of dynamic metaphors that Jesus used, none is more powerful None is more instructive than salt and light. When you think about it, they're very different, aren't they? Salt is negative. In the ancient world, salt was a preservative that kept bad things from happening. Salt is positive. It causes good things to happen. It allows one to see his way in the darkness. Light promotes health and Growth, But also we have in these two metaphors God's evaluation of this world. Oh, they look, you know, you listen to the reports. Oh, we're making progress. This is a progressing place. Jesus said it's a putrid place. Oh, listen, we're becoming more and more enlightened. This is a delightful place. And Jesus said it's a dark place. Because of the condition of the world, uh, God has left us here. 
because of the lostness of people that we rub shoulders with every day. You know, Jesus said in John 17, I'm spending a lot of time there right now. He said, uh, I'm praying for them, but I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. Shucks. (laughs) Keep them here, Lord. As salt and light. The Beatitudes ask the question, how am I different from the world system? The salt and light metaphors answer the question, how can I make a difference in the world? It's all about influence. There are three notable facts about salt. First, it's a preservative. Do you realize that in the ancient world, BR, before refrigeration, salt was a treasured commodity. Nations went to war for salt. Industries and cities, especially through Europe, like Salzburg, Austria, uh, whose name means salt fortress, sprang up around salt mines. Salt was money. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. The word salary originally meant salt. God has sprinkled specks of salt in every nook and cranny in Beckley and in Raleigh County and in West Virginia and across America and the world to keep a culture and a world from totally disintegrating through through decay. It's a preservative. Now listen, you're placed where you are. Uh, we've come to a we've come to a strange time in our neighborhood. We we've lived in our neighborhood for about twenty eight years, and we've seen a lot of dogs live and die. <laughs> neighbors' dogs. Okay, we got two. I told Mary yesterday. We got new neighbors on one side. Probably three or four months ago, we got new neighbors in the last couple of weeks, and a year before that, we got neighbors up here, and every one of them got barking dogs. I told Mary yesterday, I don't think I'm going to be able to outlive these. <laughs> okay, three, five, okay. I, th- I think they're here to stay. Okay. You know, Mary and I have reached out to our neighbors on the lower end and I haven't met the other neighbors yet. I have a friend who does prayer walks through his neighborhood. Do we believe that God has even placed us where we live and will live for some of you? For his sovereign purpose and for the gospel's sake? We're preservative. Preserve our neighborhoods. The second, it is an irritant, isn't it? Several years ago in the fall, I, uh, I put a salt block out at my tree stand. For some unearthly reason, the deer weren't interested. So I thought that if I took an axe and chipped the thing, and you know, and just got it all over everywhere, that they would really just flock to it from McDowell County and all these counties. So I took my axe, and without eye protection, duh, I pow, struck the salt block. Well, salt blew up blew into my face. I just dusted it off, didn't think much about it. Late that night, my eye began to burn. Still didn't think a whole lot about it. The next day, the staff left for a conference in Lynchburg. 
And for two days, I literally walked around with my hand over my eyes. And on the second night, one of the guys brought me home in the night. And the next morning, I could not wait to get to my optometrist. Now, what are the implications of the fact that you have been called to be sought? You're not going to always be appreciated. The things you stand for, the people you align with. When you show integrity and honesty and you're in a place of authority and you demand that from others, people will be upset. Expect that. You know, let's not be surprised. Let's not be shocked. It's an irritant. You know, you find any comfort in the fact that you've been called and left here just to aggravate people? (laughs) You have been. One more. Let me say this. There is one word we need not miss here. Is they're going to call you intolerant, right? That's the scalding water in your face. The worst sins in a PC society is to be called intolerant. Expect people to view you as intolerant. But do it anyway. Do it appropriately. Don't be weird. You know, I hear things and see things from Christians in our town, and I say, oh, God, I, I don't want to identify with that mess. God, you know, just don't let them tell anybody that they're Christians. You know, close their mouth, God. You know, send them to California, God, where all things are, well, we won't go there. Third thing about salt is, is to have effect, it must have contact. The principle is no contact, no impact. It wasn't, until, it wasn't until Daniel came in contact with the lions that the king saw the power of God. It wasn't until showdown at the OK Corral with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that God was glorified. Jesus talked about if a salt loses its flavor, if it loses its saltiness, there are two ways to, con- to, um, to dilute salt. Contaminate it or keep it in the salt shaker. Boy, we need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom. We recognize these are not simplistic matters. We need balance. How to have contact without contamination. And I tell you who really comes and, and grapples with this, the, who those of you who are, who are raising children at this time in your life. To teach our children godliness and a love for others and the lost souls of men. Having meaningful contact with them with non-believing families without putting our own children in an untenable, undesirable position. To have friends among our unsaved, unchurched neighbors without, uh, in a controlled environment. How do we do that? To protect them while sharing the faith with friends and neighbors. How do we do that? God never said to non-church people, go to church. But he says to us, go to the world. And you do that through random acts of kindness. You do that by the fruit of the Spirit, the first one being love. You do that by how you're reaching out to people. And as a church, how you participate in practical ministries that target perceived needs in our community. 
Salt has to get out of the salt shaker. We have to do more than talk good. Now, I have four application points. First is, let me just state them. The first is we're called to pray for authorities. Second Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 1, Paul says pray for kings and those who are in authority. Since we don't have a king, I guess we can pray for our president. Yep. Since we don't have a king, I suppose it would be all right to pray for our governor. Yep. Our legislators. Mm-hmm. Our city councilmen, council persons and people in Beckley. Mm-hmm. We're called to pray. This highlights the spiritual aspect of this that John said. This is not, a, this is not first and foremost a political battle. It's a battle of the ages. It's a spiritual battle. First of all, uh, pray, pray. Second, seek opportunities to serve and join others in serving those who need Christ. The development of community-focused ministries is the most significant challenge you face over the next two to three years. Number three, expect resistance to your message and lifestyle. When you get out of the boat, out of the bubble, when you get out of your comfort zone, you're exposed. You may be lied about, insulted, avoided. You say, well, that's enough for me, Pastor. I'm just going to go to home and I'm going to go home and lock my door, <laughs> okay? You know, I can't do that. We need to pray for patience, pray for grace, pray for thick skin and a tender heart. Don't be surprised. Don't be exasperated or bitter. And I deal with this as much as you do. Jesus said, rejoice. Don't compromise and don't hold back from the good news. And number four, be proactive in your involvement. I study churches across our community. I watch the churches that are growing, the churches that are reaching people the churches where people are coming to Christ. I watched those. I asked questions. I know a number of the younger pastors in our town. The CRC has helped us to get connected with them as well as the Family Policy Council. Last winter, remember when the city council was holding a meeting concerning the SOGI laws and we were encouraged to show up. Remember that? We talked about that at our church here for, I guess, a month. We said it's coming, folks. We need to be seen in good numbers. John's just announced on January the 28th there will be a rally in Charleston, and folks, they need to hear from us. Our school board has given approval for at least the high school at Greater Beckley to be involved in the Charleston rally, the Beckley rally. We got there, I think it was on a Tuesday night, after talking about this for a month, talking about the implications, talking about all of this, there were less than 10 people there from faith. What's that say? What are the implications of that? I can tell you it has huge implications for the present and the future. Huge, huge, huge. There are action items. You saw a website earlier, a rally on the 28th. 
Several weeks ago, a couple in Charleston was eating an IHOP. My young friends, are the guys in ministry today, Aaron? Of course they are. We, I miss them when they're not here. We all do, don't we? Um, thank you for holding down that spot this morning, Aaron. <laughs> you know what, my friends, you know what they call IHOP? Uh, International House of Old People. <laughs> I'm offended. I'm offended. <laughs> in all seriousness, a couple in Charleston went into the local IHOP. The wife, a pregnant mom-to-be, came out of the stall in the restroom facing a male between her and the door. Frightened, she ran past, just days from delivering a baby girl. Her furious husband called the police and was told, I'm sorry, the city council won't let us do anything to help you. They passed an ordinance adding sexual orientation and gender identity that allows males to be there. Charleston, West Virginia. I shudder to think With great anger, bordering rage, I hate to think of my wife, your wife, your girlfriend, your daughter, granddaughter, any girl or woman in this congregation stepping out of a bathroom stall to stare a male in the face and be told it is the law. We read in the Old Testament of a minority group called the sons of Issachar. A select group in the nation of Israel that understood the times and what Israel ought to do. The context is this in Chronicles. The nation was in crisis. And the people of Issachar had the wisdom to know that they must cast their lot with David. And they did. Tragedy was averted. But they didn't even stop. They didn't even stop with, you know, voting for David. That would have been great. But they cast their lot and they acted sacrificially with David. Inhumanly, the saving of the nation of Israel. Our first and primary goal is not saving America. It's the kingdom of God and it is the gospel. But as Paul taught, we must pray for those in authority. Why? So we can go on living our lives just like we have and going to Walmart on Sunday afternoon. No. Why? Because the atmosphere might be one in which the gospel can be shared in peace. So that's our challenge. We're salt. 